Hello and welcome to the sixth season of The Hive Podcast, the series that inquires into our relationship with one another, with technology and the natural world. Join me, Natalie Nahai, as we dive into the complex and challenging questions of our time and explore how some of the great minds are forging new and creative paths forward. For more information and resources about today's guest and the topics we explore, you can visit natalinahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy the show. In today's conversation, I speak with Della Duncan, a renegade economist and host of the Upstream podcast, who facilitates opportunities for personal and systemic transition to a more equitable, sustainable and enlivened world. Trained as a right livelihood coach, Della is also an Atlantic Fellow of Social and Economic Equity at the International Inequalities Institute at the London School of Economics, and she's also a Gross National Happiness Master Trainer and a Regenerative Economics Consultant. With an MA in Economics for Transition with distinction from Schumacher College and a BA in International Relations and Sociology with highest honours from the University of California, Davis, Della has also completed Joanna Macy's Work That Reconnects Intensive Programme and is a Work That Reconnects facilitator. As you can hear from the intro, Della has many strings to her bow and our conversation traverses many themes, from regenerative economics and alternative value systems to sufficiency, enoughness and one planet living. Della, I'm very excited to be chatting with you again today. How are you? Doing well and really happy to be chatting with you as well. (laughs) So I'm going to start with a question which you are now probably a bit more familiar with than most of my guests, which is to ask what you think from your perspective is happening in the global human psyche right now. I think that in the global human psyche, deep, deep, deep down, We all know that we are a part of the universe. We know that we are held in the web of life. We know that we have purpose and belong here. And I think that's not new. I think that's long running. And then I think that we have certain clouds that come on top of that. And so currently, one cloud of understanding of that deeper knowing that I'm witnessing or noticing in myself and others is the cloud of scarcity, not enoughness or greed. Mm. That's kind of one thing that I'm noticing. Also precariousness that comes up too. So I think they're both happening at the same time, but I am noticing that in myself and others. Mm, It's funny when you said the word belonging, my heart clenched a little bit and I thought, oh, do I have a deeper sense of feeling like I belong to and of this earth? And it's one of these things where alongside the awakening that we're seeing in so many parts of the world as to the the havoc that we're wreaking on our on our ecosystems, for me, there's, there's so much guilt that accompanies that to think, well, every time I eat, am I doing the right thing? Every time I buy an item of clothing, which is quite rare, am I doing the right thing? Every time I use pretty much anything, it's kind of shot through with a sense of, I think it's an internal thing of how dare you. And that's a really hard thing to live with. And so how, before I move on to the next question, I'd love to hear how you feel we can drop into that deeper sense of belonging that's that's there that you speak to. I have felt it personally when I've hit kind of deep, deep darkness or despair or depression. Like I've, Mm. when I've been with pain, either mine or the world's or other beings, other people's, and I've sat with that and I've allowed myself to go to the depth of that or the bottom of that, so to speak, I have found that I have felt a sense of being held at the bottom of that, Mm. a sense of belonging. And I've also heard others tell that same story. And also in times of crisis, I, I know this one person who tells this story of being out in the Himalayas on a backpacking journey by himself. And at one point he thought he was just completely lost and was going to die out there. And all of a sudden, kind of at the bottom of that, like despair and anxiety and confusion, the sense of ease came upon him, the sense of calm. Mm -hmm. And he, it's not that he suddenly knew the way, but he just felt okay. And just kept putting one foot in front of the other and eventually made it back. So I would say that uh, 
one of my favorite quotes Marianne Williamson says is, she says, depression can be a sacred initiation into self-actualization. And so whenever I'm either myself or with others who are experiencing suffering, sometimes if you can allow yourself to go to the depths of that, you can find that sense of deep wellness or belonging. Mm. But I think you don't have to (laughs) initiate that or create that to happen. I think you can also just enter into some silence. I think our our lives can often be quite busy and quite full of sounds and sensations and images, right, from videos or advertisements. And so when we kind of detox or take away, um, I know that's another time when I feel that sense of connection and others do as well. So maybe that's an invitation to get a sense of that. Mm. Some time without any kind of stimulation or less stimulation or a time of silence and quietude. Mm. So in your work and in your life at the moment, where are you finding meaning? One of the things that I get to do is offer right livelihood coaching for individuals. Mm. And this is how I bring the alternative economic thought and practice into the context of individuals' lives. And I find great joy and meaning from that work because I get to listen and reflect back and then offer wisdom, um, you know, not my own, but <laughs> wisdom from practitioners or teachers or stories uh, that hopefully help people where they're at. And yeah, it's just beautiful to be with people when they're in transition, when they're in kind of a questioning mode or a, a deep inquiry. It's, it's good to be with them and help them through that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I find deep, deep joy and deep meaning in that. And I'd say the concept of right livelihood in general, which comes from the Buddhist tradition. And it's really, in my view, how we take our mindfulness and heartfulness practices off the cushion and into our daily lives. So our right livelihood is our contribution to service, you know, to to life on earth. And so this right livelihood journey is something both for myself and witnessing and helping to explore that in others is something that brings great meaning and joy for me as well. How much of that do you find stems from your work in the journey of engaged Buddhist Dharma teachings? Because I know that that's something else that you're exploring. Yeah, I would say that initially, when I first started offering right livelihood coaching, it had more connection to engaged Buddhism. I remember one of my favorite teachers, Joanna Macy, hearing her recently in an interview say that she doesn't call herself a Buddhist. She says she's Buddhist, (laughs) or she says that she recognizes the Buddha as a great teacher. And I had always described her as Buddhist. Mm. And I'm also reminded of a quote by Ram Das, who said, my parents hate me when I'm Buddhist, but love me when I'm Buddha-like. And so I say this because I find the, the teachings of Buddha and Buddhism to be very helpful in this livelihood exploration. But I also find alternative economics in general and other eco-spiritual traditions. So I would say that it has since broadened, and I would say there's an influence in Buddhism, but a not exclusivity, if that makes sense. Mm. And so I'm curious right now in particular, especially with so many of us really having to face existential questions and facing the choices that we've made in our lives and what priorities we wish to kind of put our energy behind. In your work with the Right Livelihood Coaching, are there certain themes or questions that are coming up more because of the pressure that we're under, the anxiety that we face at this moment in time? The main question that keeps coming up right now is how can people do work that they love and that they find meaningful while having their needs met, while having financial stability and resilience? Mm. Because the economy is not necessarily set up for work that is of meaning and contribution as much. Mm. So time and time again, people are really struggling with that question, really. Uh, whether it's folks who are doing work that they feel is uh, not right livelihood, maybe wrong livelihood, we could say, or exploitative or extractive in some way, and they want to leave that to do something more meaningful, then they have that concern of how will I meet my needs? 
or if there's someone who is maybe unemployed or underemployed and they want to begin something of meaning and contribution, then they're asking, how can I do this meaningfully? So I would say that one of the biggest questions, yeah, is how do we meet our needs in this current economic system while uh, pursuing right livelihood, a path of work that is contributing to the thriving of people on the planet? So that would, I would say, is one of the biggest questions. And some reflections on that that I've had with folks is if we can look at our needs holistically and assess what needs are being met currently and what needs are not, and also investigate which are the needs that have to be met financially or on the monetized market, then we find that there are some needs that don't have to be met in the financialized market, such as the need for learning or the need for community, right? Those can be financialized. You can pay to be part of a, let's say, a fitness club, (laughs) or you can go to fly to Bali to go to educational retreats, right? There's other ways, though, to meet those needs that are either not as expensive or not monetized at all, um, such as volunteering or community engagement work or going to the library, reading a book, such as that. I say that because when we then say, what are your needs? What are the creative ways you can meet your needs? Then we can come up with a, a money amount, an income level that meets a sense of contentment or sufficiency mm-hmm. and not a sense of needing more and more and more or needing this huge amount that then folks feel they have to compromise their values. So I would say that feels liberating for folks. Mm-hmm. Also, just taking a post-growth attitude in general, people understanding that they will want to grow their income or wealth to a certain level and then they can stop and and reach a level of sufficiency or contentment and then grow in other ways. So it's adopting that post-growth mentality to their personal life. I think people find that as well liberating and also inspiring to lead a more holistic, more fulfilling life. Hmm. That's such an interesting idea, that of sufficiency. Because I think one of the things that obviously we seem to be hell-bent upon is this idea about growth being the ever-increasing acquisition of material gain and having to keep up with others and having to kind of display our status through what we acquire and the kind of, I guess, more financial display of, of value. Is there a way in which that's something which we can unhook ourselves from? Are there certain techniques or practices that enable us to, to find that less desirable and actually meaningfully ask the question, what is enough for me? Yeah, that's a beautiful question. How do we do that? And I think if we can figure that out, Natalie, we can create so much more ecological balance and also a sense of well-being, a deeper sense of well-being. So I think that's beautiful. One thing that comes to mind are looking to nature, so ecological wisdom. I mean, one that's related to nature is Rob Hopkins, founder of Transition Town Movement. I interviewed him once and he said, you know, I want my son to grow to a certain height. And then I want him to stop growing. And then I want him to grow in other ways. (laughs) Like the, you know, his interests or his skills in musical instruments, right? So in that regard, I think about, you know, myself or or people think about their own lives as, yeah, what do they want to grow to materially? And then what are the other ways they want to grow? So it's not at that point there's like a plateau or then it's stagnation. It's that there's other places for growth in your life. So that's one. And why I say ecological is because we can think about the same thing for a tree or a plant or an ecosystem, right? They grow in some ways and then they grow in other ways, for example. But I, I also think this could be where that Buddhist part comes in, right? So I'm reminded of E.F. Schumacher, the development economist in the 60s and 70s. He was a traditional economist and went to Burma And he was tasked with helping the communities there to Mm. grow, right? Classic development growth of GDP. And he went there and he was so touched by the Buddhist philosophy and way of living there that he had this realization himself that perhaps life is not about 
the acquisition or the growth or accumulation of material wealth. And instead, what he realized there was that people were trying to be happy with less and less. Like there was a certain humility or a decluttering to their lives and minds. And that really touched him and that inspired him to write the classic book, Small is Beautiful, Mm. Economics as if People Mattered. And he has a chapter in there actually called Buddhist Economics. So I guess if I were to invite folks to explore this enoughness or sufficiency in their own life, one teacher that I would invite folks to turn to is Marie Kondo. (laughs) I just moved and went through the art of tidying up, and I just found it so cleansing to go through each item, to hold it in my hands, to ask if it sparks joy. And then at the end of that process, with all the stuff that did not spark joy for me, to keep it circulating, keep it moving in the world. And it really invited me to declutter and only have items that really bring me joy. Um, I'm in my room right now looking around, and it just creates a totally different atmosphere and environment. So uh, I I invite folks to just try on this, this idea of enoughness and what are the other ways after material needs are met. Because I am not saying that we do not have material needs, and I'm not saying that we need money to meet some of those needs. But once we've met that, what are the other ways that we can grow and invite folks to explore that in their own lives? I think one of the interesting things there as well is that, or at least I've certainly been playing with this question a lot, in the absence of alternative experiences of enoughness, by which I mean, for instance, if you're someone who um, gets their their kicks or moments of pleasure or joy through buying lots of stuff online or watching loads of Netflix or especially in times of isolation, you know, finding other ways to distract themselves because they can't go and spend the evening with their friends gathered around the pub table, whatever it might be. In the absence of these direct experiences of fulfillment that can come from just the pure joy of relating with another person, with your dog, with the forest, whatever it is, I think it becomes very difficult to turn down the volume on these other ways of escaping and it can be very hard to kind of unhook oneself and I've noticed this personally as well this thing of depending on where I look how I respond in terms of what my needs are for myself or what I imagine them to be so if I'm looking at other people who are on the speaker circuit and they're charging astronomical fees it becomes harder for me to say well maybe what I'm charging for this is enough because it's aligned with my values and I don't want to you know go with a client that I think maybe has uh, a dissonance in terms of what their values are and what mine are. But it's that whole aspect of where we choose to look and where we choose to invest our value. Is this person's opinion and way of living aligned with my own? And do I therefore try and create a life that maybe is a reflection of what they're modelling? And I think that that visual representation of or direct experience of an alternative way to live is so, so important to unhooking ourselves from what's otherwise pretty strong as a social narrative of always accumulating and a- achieving greater financial success. You know, you yeah, you bring up a really good question around value and how do we value our work? How do we value our hour? Uh, yeah, such beautiful questions and such deep economic questions. I have to say what I have found helpful and again, comes back to Buddhist economics. So maybe I am more connected with Buddhist <laughs> economics than I think, is the concept of dana. Dana is the Pali word for generosity. And in Buddhist communities, it's often that things are offered by donation. So you might go to a, a Dharma talk by a Buddhist teacher or a monk or nun, and they offer a talk or a teaching, and then you have the opportunity to donate, right? And I have taken that concept of Donna and brought it actually into my coaching and my consulting. So, oh wow! Like somebody writes me, like for example, this couple wrote me the other day, and they were like, "We want to start an eco village. Um, we want your consulting advice. Uh, can we have an hour of your time?" And I say, "Absolutely." They say, "How much do you typically charge for this?" And I say, "It is Donna based, meaning I am going to give you an hour of my time, my listening, my attentiveness, my reflections and advice, resources." all of that, and be fully present for you and your dream. And then at the end of it, you have the opportunity to gift give to me. Mm-hmm. And that amount is whatever you feel is generous. And one way to think about this is what feels generous to you, but doesn't hurt you, mm-hmm. right? So it's an opportunity for them to gift give. And I do all of my coaching this way and most of my consulting this way. 
And I just love it because it really takes the expectation away. Like if if I told them this hour is worth, let's say, $100, then I would feel this need to perform up to $100 worth of, <laughs> you know, <laughs> output, which what does that even yeah, mean, yeah. right? So by doing it by donation, it also makes it radically accessible because there might be someone who's just starting with their idea or someone who's unemployed or someone who's in the global south who contacts me, mm -hmm. right? And so there's just no way that I could put that hour of gift to them in a quantified way that they would then, you know, that there would be the exact same for everyone. So I just want to share that's how I've looked at that concept of value and work. Mm, that's a fascinating, a very revolutionary approach, I think, especially when you translate it into the business world, which it kind of intersects with. So I wonder how this connects with your fabulous title, Renegade Economist. Like, How did you come to that title? What does it mean for you? The concept Renegade Economist, uh, I first heard from Kate Rayworth, who's a Oxford-based economist, famous for something called the donut, donut economics, where we imagine that we change the goal of economic systems from blind growth to the meeting of human needs within the needs of the planet. That's her main idea. And she wrote an amazing book called Donut Economics, Seven Ways to Think Like a 21st Century Economist. Mm. She has been called or calls herself, I can't remember, a renegade economist. And I just loved that frame and really wanted to kind of be in solidarity or even in cahoots with, with <laughs> Kate Rayworth. And so I, I mean, yeah, maybe it's an aspiration, but I call myself a renegade economist. And that really, in a deep way, alludes to the discipline of economics, like what you'd find in a traditional economic classroom in a university or in a business section of a newspaper. It alludes to the fact that there's a lot of assumptions that, are, that underpin mainstream economic thinking that I think are deeply unhelpful, mm. both because they go unquestioned, period, and also because those assumptions then lead to suffering of people on the planet. They lead to inequality, they lead to climate change, ecological devastation, precariousness, suicide, etc. So I think being a renegade economist is to question, challenge, and rethink economics as a discipline mm. uh, in the world in terms of practice and also in terms of theory. So given that we're working, most of us, within a specific economic structure, what do you feel is and isn't working in that structure currently? I'm going to take inspiration from Donella Meadows. Donella Meadows was a systems thinker. She passed away, but she wrote this amazing essay called Leverage Points, Places to Intervene in a System, where she ranks in order of effectiveness how we might change a system, such as an economy or an ecological system, political system, uh, what have you. And she says that the third highest leverage point to change a system is to change the goal. Okay, so changing the goal. That's something we've already spoken about. Mm. On the individual level, that's changing the goal from acquisition of material wealth, also the kind of self-oriented acquisition of material wealth, like as if how it's made or where it comes from, where the materials come from, the carbon footprint to get it does not matter. So changing the goal from acquisition of material wealth to perhaps something like purpose or contribution, a deeper sense of right livelihood or contribution, right? Those could be some ways. On the more national level, we have many alternatives to the goal of growing GDP, gross domestic product. We have the donut, which I spoke about. We also have gross national happiness, which is from the kingdom of Bhutan. Um, in Wales, they have the Wales Wellbeing Act. In New Zealand, they have another another idea. So there's many around the world. Also in Latin America, there's Buen Vivir in Latin and South America. So changing the goal at that level. And then globally, of course, the donut or coming into one planet living, right? Where everyone's ecological footprint is one planet. So there's that idea as well. And then the second highest leverage point, Danella Meadows would say, is to change the paradigm. So to change the worldview or the paradigm that then creates the system. 
This relates to that Albert Einstein quote, you can't solve a problem with the same level of thinking that created it. So what are our current assumptions Mm. in traditional economic thinking? One of them is that work is a disutility, meaning we try to work as little as possible. It's something that we don't like doing. So what if we reframe that to, again, right (laughs) livelihood or that work can be something very beautiful and that actually it's our contribution to the world? Mm. There's also an assumption that we are dominant over nature, right? That nature is for our use and abuse and exploitation. What if we rethought that, perhaps inspired by indigenous wisdom traditions, such as the earth is animate, other beings, other nature beings like plants, animals, and mountains and waters are actually alive. They're animate and they have inherent value beyond usefulness to humans, Mm. right? And then there's also this concept of ownership, right? That we can own land, Mm. that we can own a business, right? What if we were stewards instead of owners, for example? There's the circular economy, thinking about our relationship with waste and our economies, the way they produce waste. What if we had a circular economy model where it was more regenerative, where anything that was quote-unquote waste was then reincorporated back into the uh, manufacturing process? And there's many inspiring examples of that that I encourage people to check out. Mm. So there's that idea. But I, I really could go on, but I do, have to, I do have to say that the highest leverage point, in case people are wondering what that is, Danella Meadows is to, says is to transcend paradigms, to hold even that new paradigm that you find so helpful, hold it lightly. So what this means to me is to maintain a beginner's mind, to stay open, to not get attached, to be able to listen to others' views. So I do love things that change my way of thinking, like universal basic income, cryptocurrency, to hold them lightly, that perhaps they serve uh, the flourishing of people on the planet, perhaps they don't, but let's explore it. So it's, it's kind of a holding of our new paradigms, worldviews, and values lightly, so that we can stay kind of fresh in turning towards what is supportive of life on Earth. And I think right now in this moment, it's such an important chance to grasp as much as we can for those of us who have the ability and um, the financial security to be able to do that. Because I think when you're talking about changing paradigms, so much of that comes down also to our ability to withstand uncertainty and ambiguity and the unknown. And of course, you know, one of the things that people have been talking about a lot recently is that actually we're always living with uncertainty and the unknown. It's just that previous to the pandemic, we were operating on a set of assumptions that this would continue and continue and continue. And it's only when something large and disruptive happens that there is a chance for old systems to really come under scrutiny and splinter and fall in some cases and for something else to be reimagined and built in its place. From your perspective, you mentioned there regenerative economics, and I wonder if maybe that touches into all the different alternatives that you spoke about. But do you think that regenerative economics is something which people are now more willing to consider as a path forward? Absolutely. I think, as you brought up, that many people are aware that our way of living, and when I say our way of living, I really mean mostly the global north, right? Folks whose ecological footprint is beyond one planet living, that that the way of living is unsustainable and that infinite growth is not possible, even deadly, on a finite planet, Mm. right? And so people are aware of this. People are even experiencing themselves, not just the global south is experiencing this, although, you know, the devastating effects of climate change are most impacted on communities in the global south. But People are experiencing this like myself. I was uh, evacuated from a wildfire here in California for a month last year. Mm. So I think that um, people are aware of this. And one thing that people are noticing is that our economic system is unsustainable. And regenerative economics just provides that alternative of how do we regenerate our ecological systems and our health and well-being in ways that are circular and supportive of the ecological system. So that feels intuitive for folks. It feels hopeful and it helps them be able to imagine and work to better possibilities. Mm. And so exploring that then, I think one of the things that's been really exciting prior to the pandemic, people were talking about, oh, you know, we need to go local. We need to 
enable communities to come together and be self-sustaining a bit more. But a lot of it was theoretical. And I really found, certainly in my neck of the woods in Barcelona, that that when the lockdown started to hit, many of my friends stopped shopping at big supermarkets and turned to their smaller local shops where they were selling locally farmed produce, where it was farm to fork, if you like. And I've noticed these trends elsewhere as well. Do you feel that there is more of a sense of urgency? Do you think it's time for a bigger shift anyway that was going to happen and the pandemic just accelerated it? I am reminded at the beginning of the pandemic, all those beautiful poems that came out about how this is the time that everyone slowed down and reconnected and and the dolphins came back to Italy and the songbirds came back in Wuhan, China. And I mean, those are based on real things and that's mm. very beautiful. And, and I thought it, they were beautiful poems when I heard them. I think then I noticed a an awareness of the growing inequality, the the idea that COVID-19 was actually an inequality ratchet. So for folks who were precarious or, you know, people who are having to work uh, outside mm. the home or parents, right, things like that, they their inequality grew, actually. Women dropped out of the labor force at a higher rate, for example. Um, you know, frontline workers being exposed to COVID-19 and things like that. So... Mm. And then, of course, the Global South and the impact of COVID-19 there. In terms of the local economy piece, I would say I think people are aware that we have to work on both levels. We have to localize our economies, our supply chains, get to know our neighbors. I think actually for me, the the wildfires in California uh, or climate change disasters in general have made that more relevant, that we need more mutual aid and connection in our neighborhoods, you know, in terms of disaster preparedness and responding when something happens better. Mm. But I would say that and the people also are aware of the global system too. But I say all this, and I live two blocks away from Whole Foods. And from what we know about Amazon and Whole Foods, and, you know, it's like, it also feels that people are not so awake or aware that systems are really significantly changing and crumbling. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I would say there's actually more heat that's needed, so to speak, mm-hmm. to really act on some of these global systemic injustices that we face. And I think one of the things that you're helping to contribute to that heat, and certainly you're inspiring a lot of people to think deeper thoughts and questions on this, is your Upstream podcast. It's a beautiful contribution to that fire, if you like. And I'd, I'd love to ask, what inspired you to create it in the first place and how it gets its name? Yes. I was studying alternative economics at Schumacher College, named after E.F. Schumacher, who I spoke about earlier. And the degree is called Economics for Transition. It's itself inspired by the Transition Town Movement, which is a a local community group that wanted to move their local economy away from fossil fuels. So I was studying there and just really touched and inspired by all that I was learning. And yet we were such a small cohort in the master's program, only 15 people. Mm -hmm. And I was just feeling like, wow, more people need to hear what we're learning about so I created the podcast actually as a uh, an assignment. Oh, wow. <laughs> it was a graded assignment, the first episode, Amazing. which was a critique of the sharing economy, the quote-unquote sharing economy, so Uber, Airbnb, TaskRabbit, et cetera. So it was a critique of that economy, and it was an assignment, and then I shared it out. And, and then my master's dissertation was a three-part radio documentary series for the Upstream podcast. So I really wanted to utilize my educational experience as part of my right livelihood path and and also utilize the upstream podcast as a way of sharing out what I was learning. Mm. And I think it still serves that purpose that I just feel so grateful that I get to reach out to folks, whether they have a new book out or they have <laughs> a, 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 you know, a thought provoking idea or um, prototype in the world. And I get to speak with them about it and then share that conversation and, and yeah, get that word out there. So, yeah, that's how I started the podcast. The name, the Upstream Podcast, comes from a metaphor. And this is a metaphor that I have heard attributed to public health, although it's it, I haven't found the exact origin. It's called the Upstream Metaphor, and the idea is that you imagine you're standing at the bank of a river and you see someone float by who's drowning. So you jump in to save them and pull them to shore. 
But then you look up and you see more people floating down the river drowning. So you jump in to pull them to shore. And then pretty soon you look up and there's just all these people floating down the river drowning that eventually you or a group of you have to go upstream Mm. to figure out why is everyone falling in in the first place. So I loved this metaphor as a way of thinking about the root causes of the economic challenges of our time, inequality, homelessness, precariousness, etc., climate change. So I've been on that journey ever since. Uh, I heard that when I, it was even before I went to Schumacher College, and I've been on that journey ever since to find the root causes. Now, I will say, Natalie, that recently somebody made me aware that a systemic way of thinking is actually to not see root causes, to see causation as more of a ball of yarn, um, you know, that there's more like a interconnected systemic uh, effect of things, which totally makes sense to me. So it's funny, my own relationship with that theme has varied slightly. <laughs> I, I still think it's a helpful journey to go on. But I think that, you know, let's say you feel a sense of alienation in your work because you work in a business and your boss is making you work and then you don't own any of the fruits of your labor and you can't make any decision. Okay, and then you go upstream from that. Oh, it's, you know, ownership, autonomy, democracy, right? But then you might create a worker cooperative. So it's 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 cyclical that the outer material changes in the world also impact our internal reality, our paradigms and worldviews and vice versa. Mm-hmm. So I, I am seeing it more of a ball of yarn these days than a than a, a river. Yeah, I think as your thinking develops, it's going to be nice to be able to follow you on that journey. So what are some of the stories of hope and resilience and success that have moved you in recent years when thinking about regenerative economics, thinking about resilience? I think that Kate Rayworth being an economist, being a female economist, and not, I know she doesn't have a PhD, so she kind of lacks that quote-unquote credibility that uh, sometimes economists or people in the 1% would really view, mm-hmm. that, that her voice and ideas and book has gone so viral. Mm-hmm. And the fact that the donut is something that people are really inspired by. And I'm actually part of the California Donut Economics Coalition. So we are creating a donut selfie for the state of California. Oh, wow. And we, it's, we're 100% volunteers, and we just put the call out there. And so many people have come to join us, to help us to find the data, to put it together, to dream what we could do with this data. So I'm, I'm actually really inspired by that. And then someone from the Biden transition team reached out to me and said, can you connect me with Kate Rayworth? Oh, wow. Um, so actually, Kate gave a presentation to the Biden transition team, <laughs> which is so exciting. So I, I think that is one of the greatest stories of hope that, mm. that I find. But I think in general, I mean, when I look personally or locally, when I just see people who care about their local community and then feel inspired to to act, anytime that happens, I feel inspired. Mm-hmm. So in my little neighborhood in San Francisco, it feels like a small town in a big city. We have a like a local art nonprofit that's popping up. We have community cleanups. We're starting a solar panel energy community-owned cooperative. Oh, wow. So it's it's fun to to watch and to witness and to just be a part of it, just mm. practically speaking, that I am a part of it. Mm. The other two things I have to mention, they're more um, organizational, structural, in case folks who listen to your podcast are more interested in that. I'm really inspired by worker self-directed nonprofits. So we know that worker cooperatives are more democratic and more equitable, uh, and they feel better for folks who work in them and they're better for the planet. We know that. So what about nonprofits, right? They can still be very top-down, very hierarchical. So the worker self-directed nonprofit takes on that worker cooperative way of working, but brings it to a nonprofit space. And I've been involved in some consulting projects that have offered that, and that has been really transformative, that kind of horizontal governance, shared leadership, um, consensus decision-making. It just feels so much more solidaristic, which I love. And then the last one is I'm really curious about a world without profit or a world where profit is redirected or harnessed for social or environmental good. So I'm not talking about a benefit corporation or a, a conscious capitalist enterprise. I think those maybe are on the way, but I'm, I'm imagining, imagine we woke up and 
all for-profit businesses, their profit was harnessed or redirected to social or environmental good, either through a partnership with a nonprofit or they create a nonprofit within their own enterprise. But that concept really inspires me because we have so many people in nonprofits who have to continue to apply for grant funding or donations, and that can often feel very limiting. And we also have a lot of folks who are entrepreneurial and who are good at marketing. And so we say to those folks, you know, your skills are not bad. It's more, what is it used for? What is the goal? And could we direct that goal to social or environmental good? So there's a book that just came out called How on Earth Flourishing in a Not-for-Profit World by 2050 by uh, a woman named Jennifer Hinton and a co-author. And I just think that is really inspiring to me right now and really hopeful as well. That's such an interesting perspective about giving all profits. I'm curious that for people who want to, well, this taps into a whole other conversation around property and ownership rights. But for someone, if they want to, for instance, buy themselves a home, and in order to do so, they need to make a living. Obviously, I'm making assumptions here that that's something that exists in your future version of of economics. But what happens in that scenario in terms of the money that people take home or the money that a business earns? Does everything go outside of the business? How do people then go to the point where they do have enoughness, like a security of having a roof over their heads that belongs to them? So there is a study that was done around income and happiness being correlated up to a certain level. So this is what I meant by some material growth is understandable, right? If you don't have access to clean drinking water or your home is is not adequate for uh, living well or you're not able to buy food that is healthy and nutritious for you, right, or for the planet, right? So that's what I'm saying. Income and happiness are correlated up to a certain level. Now, here's where it gets really tricky because (laughs) what I've seen is that level is about $100,000 a year. Okay, that is so difficult because are we talking globally? I mean, I'm Mm. in San Francisco, one of the most expensive places in the world. If I told people, I think like 106 is actually the poverty line for the year for US, I mean, for San Francisco residents, family of four, family of four. But yeah, it's, it's, so it's, it's, that's really tricky. So instead, I wouldn't want your audience to get kind of um, (laughs) hooked to that number. But I would say, um, Imagine a business. Let's take any business. Let's take Airbnb, for example. Imagine you're working, you're part of that core group of Airbnb. Now, first off, I would say, you know, I'd, I'd be pro-cooperativization. So it's a worker cooperative instead of a, a traditional capitalist business. So let's imagine Airbnb became Fairbnb and they are now worker cooperative. Okay. <laughs> I like that. Now let's imagine that Airbnb workers, those who, not not those who bring the homes onto the platform, but those who actually work for Airbnb, Airbnb employees. Let's imagine that every single one of them did this process of what is enoughness, and they were able to come up with a number, okay? And they were able to distinguish, like, how what, what should be the pay variation? Maybe someone with more experience or more student debt would make a little bit more. Okay, they decide that. Okay, so imagine they do that. And then imagine they paid all their bills, right? Their operating costs, their probably their Zoom accounts at this point, right? Um, and they paid everyone a living wage, we can call it, or that place where income and happiness correlate, Okay. Anything over that, and that's what I'm calling profit. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about excess. So I'm talking about no more shareholders, right? I'm talking about after either the shareholders have been paid out or whatever. That profit per year is then redirected or harnessed or given to a nonprofit. Mm -hmm. It could be of their choice. Let's say next door to Airbnb headquarters, there's a rape crisis center totally struggling for funding, right? Relying on donations or dwindling state funding. If Airbnb had to pay their workers well, pay all of their ethical supply chains and costs, but they had excess at the end of the year, that 100% of that would be redirected Mm. or given to a nonprofit of their choice, saving the ocean, you know, or a rape crisis center, a homeless center, whatever it is, a nonprofit of their choice. Mm. That's what I'm talking about. So I'm not saying that there should be scarcity or lack in that original business. I'm saying that Perhaps we can see a sense of enoughness there. And, and I want to just bring in one last thing before we close this part is a woman named Wendy Liu. I interviewed her. She wrote a book called Abolish Silicon Valley. Hmm. And in it, she, she tries to think about 
a post-capitalist Silicon Valley. And here's a quote from her book. She says, there's another way to understand profit as an indicator of inefficiency, a sign that something has gone wrong in the factors that shape a given market. So it's almost like, you know, you work to a certain level in a company or corporation, but if they're growing excessively, there's something off there. Hmm. And it's, it's kind of a runaway enterprise. So how do we redirect that again for social or environmental good? So anyway, this this idea is maybe maybe challenging for folks. I'm not trying to take anything away from them. I'm actually trying to say, how do we then harness that profit and that entrepreneurship for social or environmental good? How does that sound, Natalie? That sounds so much more tangible to me. I think also it's one of the tricky things when we're talking about these concepts, which are relatively unknown to the large majority of people is is making it clear what it could look like so that then people have a sense of what might benefit them, what models they might follow, and then it becomes perhaps less distant and more more possible. So then coming to the close of this conversation, I have a few more questions I want to ask, but if I can first ask you maybe as a as a brief summary, what vision of the future you're holding. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, I have to say I have a vision of a future without profit. (laughs) I'm inspired by the idea of enoughness, of sufficiency, of one planet living. And then, you know, if there is profit or excess or whatever that's generated in an economy or an enterprise, that that's redirected. I just find that so, again, I'm using this word liberating a lot, but I feel like it's so liberating and so helpful. Mm -hmm. So I see that. And with that, I feel a deep sense of contentment, that people feel content with their lives and their work, and also a greater sense of equality. I think that mechanism would lead to a greater sense of equality. And we know there's a great book called The Spirit Level, and it's written by Kate Pickett and Richard Wilkinson, and they talk about how a more equal society is better for everyone. Mm. So they say that in a in a more equal society, there are lower levels of violence, of pollution, of you know teen pregnancy or suicide, right? All these other things. Because when we live in an unequal society, it has such a negative impact on our mental health, mm-hmm. and not just for the the people at the bottom, but the people at the top as well. So I think my vision for a better world would be a more equal society. Also in terms of the global south and global north, we didn't talk about this as much, but one lo- one idea that I love is a global minimum wage. Mm. Imagine that. Imagine we had a global minimum wage. And also, of course, debt jubilee for the global south, or at least, you know, ending the mechanisms of uh, colonization that still exist mm. in the global south, especially in terms of financial means. So yeah, I, I just see a more equal world and a more one planet living world where we're all living in relation with the more than human world in harmony and in balancing so that we can thrive. But again, in the terms of the donut, we're <laughs> thriving within the thriving or within the consideration of the thriving of the more than human world. Mm. I think that's the vision that I hold and that I try to work towards. That's wonderful. I would normally ask what book has most captivated your imagination and why, but you've given a list of beautiful books. I don't know if you want to pick one and bump it to the top (laughs) or if you want to share another that you've read recently that you've really enjoyed. I recently finished Elegant Simplicity by Satish Kumar, the founder of Schumacher College, who I that I spoke about earlier. He was a Jain monk when he started his life and walked around the world, I think for two years, without any money. Wow. Just talk about trust in the web of life, <laughs> just total trust for everything, for food, housing, shelter, all of it. And he wrote this book about why living simply is um, not just beautiful and um, increases our well-being, but it's also necessary, (laughs) necessary for the planet um, and necessary for that, you know, that redistribution of wealth, that sense of equality that I spoke about. So, yeah, I guess if folks want to explore this concept of enoughness or sufficiency, his book, Elegant Simplicity, and maybe this is why it's so alive for me right now, but is a beautiful invitation to learn how he has done it himself, but also how in all ways of our life we can live more simply. He even speaks about our ways of thinking, like having a cluttered mind, 
<laughs> or cluttered words even to be more succinct and deliberate with our our speaking. So it's it's a many-fold way of thinking about elegant simplicity, but I think having read the Marie Kondo book and then that book, I'm just <laughs> I'm obviously on a kick. So I hope it's helpful or inspiring to folks, but yeah, I'm 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 just this is feeling alive for me as an insight for our time mm-hmm. right now to live with elegant simplicity, contentment, a sense of enoughness. And yeah, and knowing that even if all falls away, we are still held in that web of life that we still belong. Um, yeah, just want to wish that for folks as they listen <laughs> and go on with their their days. Thank you. And so, so finally, I'd like to ask what question you'd like people to dwell with at this moment and perhaps one thing they can do to move in that direction of elegant simplicity that you so beautifully described. I would invite folks to quiet down or come to a point of um, simplicity and way of being for a moment and just tap into that deep sense of wellness or contentment or enoughness that really exists, that sense of being held by the web of life as I spoke about. And then I'd also invite them, if you want to go into a more heady theoretical space, to do an assessment, do an assessment of your needs in your life what needs are being met, what needs are not. If you would like a list of needs, then Manfred Max Neef, Manfred Max Neef, a Chilean economist, he talks about fundamental human needs. You can utilize those. And to just do an assessment of your needs and how they're being met. And then to see what are the creative ways to resource yourself to meet those needs that aren't being met. And to think of them as Manfred Max Neef would say, how, how can you satisfy your needs instead of pseudo-satisfying, which means you're not really meeting them, or instead of violating other needs of yours or needs of the planet's? So how can you meet your needs? How can you meet them creatively? What needs need to be met financially and which don't? And then see, what does enoughness look and feel like? What could it be like? What is that point that in which you want to grow to and then maybe stop growing in terms of finances or material acquisition and then grow in other ways and what are those other ways that you want to grow what is your relationship with right livelihood right now with contribution with service so i just invite folks to take all the themes of this conversation and make sense of them in their own life and you know connect with me and let me know how off i am or how crazy this sounds (laughs) because i really am truly just you know, exploring and learning and and trying it on for myself as I go. So this is not the truth with a capital T. These are merely invitations for your life. But I do hope that, you know, in the end, that it may bring you a sense of contentment, a sense of enoughness, a sense of ease, and also help support the living earth um, that we are part of. Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalina Hai. If you enjoyed the show, please do give it a rating and review as it helps to reach new ears. And for more information, you can visit natalinahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast or reach out to me on Twitter at Natalina Hai. My thanks to Caro C for producing. Thank you for listening. And I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.